Romeo Sings the streets so serenade He's laying everybody low He's got a love song that he made He finds a convenient street light And he steps out of the shade And he says something like You and me, baby How about it? Juliet says, hey, it's Romeo He nearly gave me a heart attack Yeah, well, he's underneath my window Now she's singing Hey, la, my boyfriend's back You shouldn't come around here Singing up to people like that Oh, anyway, what you gonna do about this? And Juliet, the dice were loaded from the start And I bet, and you exploded into my heart And I forget, I forget The movie song When you gonna realize Just at the time was wrong Julie Good afternoon. This is the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor and we're speaking today via Skype to Shelley Oria who is in Tel Aviv joining us and I'm in Ann Arbor. Um, thanks for being here today, Shelley. Hi, thanks for having me, Amanda. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Here in a metaphorical sense. I'm <laughs> glad you're yes. here on, uh, in a digital way. Um, Shelley, you are editor of the forthcoming um, anthology Indelible in the Hippocampus. And um, yes. it is it, coming out September 10th, 2019 from McSweeney's. And of course, I. It is, which is so soon now. <laughs> so soon, so soon. We're speaking <laughs> on August 27th here. Um, and yes. I always uh, want to make sure I declare my own uh, affiliation with McSweeney's. I'm the executive director of McSweeney's. Um, and we're so excited to have you here on the Living Writers Program to talk about this book and um, Thank you. other work as well. Yes. yes. So excited to be talking to you. Good. Well, for, um, <laughs> for our listeners who have not yet seen a galley, which is all that is out there in the world as yet, um, maybe you could just sort of introduce the book for us. Um, tell us, you know, take, sure. take your time. I'm, I'm well familiar, but I'd love for our listeners to know um, from your perspective. <laughs> I think you are quite, quite well familiar, yes. Yeah. Um, so Indelible in the Hippocampus is an anthology of essays, short stories, and poems, which I always sort of like to take a moment to let that information sink in, because for various reasons that I guess we can discuss when people hear anthology, and especially about a sort of timely topic, they just sort of assume essays, they assume nonfiction. So sometimes even after I say fiction and poetry, and nonfiction, people are still like sort of saying, you know, oh, that, that anthology of essays that you edited. I'm like, yeah, essays and stories and poems. Um, mm -hmm. But the sort of tagline that, that we're using is writings from the Me Too movement. So it's essays and, and stories and poems um, that reflect various um, Me Too experiences that, um, that women have had, that women have been inspired to share or write about um, or make art about or however we sort of want to uh, frame it. Um, and, and as you said, it's coming out very soon now. And I'm very excited about that because it sort of takes this project and this conversation that we've been having for, uh, two years. And, you know, by we, I mean the, the very collective we of, of the world and the yeah. U S and also of us and also all the, the team at McSweeney's and also myself and the 22 other writers who have contributed to the, 
anthology and sort of crossing the, you know, the, the next step into the next level of expanding that conversation and taking these pieces to hopefully many, many readers. So it's sort of um, inconceivable, kind of, like it's <laughs> so exciting and hard to imagine um, what that's going to feel like in just a few weeks when hopefully we can have any conversations with readers who are um, encountering these texts for the first time after we've been thinking about them and talking about them and revising them and editing them and proofreading them. And um, it will be very exciting, I think. Yeah, you're speaking a lot, Shelley, about this moment in publishing where much of our work is done, and um, and now we wait. So I, <laughs> I, I received the um, the notice that the finished books um, for Indelible are at our distributor. They they ship away from oh. the printer, and the distributor has them, and so they are just waiting for readers. Um, Oh my God! This and is... you you waited to tell me this on on the air. Okay, and now I'm I did. Goosebumps over here and on the other side of the world. Oh wow! Oh. I just I felt that. That is talk about very that exciting to hear. Talk about that a little bit. I know this this is not your first book, and I want to talk about your bio and your background in a minute. But um, mm-hmm. let's talk about that moment in publishing when mm-hmm. the the publisher and the author and the editor and the contributors um, have done what they're going to do for the most part. Mm -hmm. I know you're still doing a book tour, so you still have things to do, but but we've done our part. Um, And now we anticipate what's next, right? I mean, yes, but it feels like such a continuum, like such a um, an ongoing sort of never stopping process until it stops. But for such a long time, I feel like um, you know, if anything, there was probably a lull from me, from my point of view and probably from the contributors as well. Um, at some point many months ago, like after I think most of the editing was done before proofreading began, sure. But at this point, I think the conversation just never stops because like you said, yes, I still have book tour, but book tour, as you well know, wasn't born in a day like we all worked so hard and so many in indelible's case so many writers just like across the country um writers were not even in the book and activists like people just um heard about it or people i reached out to or people i reached out to connected me to other people and a lot of people just helped either you know just volunteering to read at at an event with us um volunteering to connect us with a bookstore if we didn't already have a connection which usually dan at mcsweeney's kind of knows all the bookstores in all the world and knows all the people yeah. and all the places but in the r- very rare case that dan <laughs> does not and someone kind of jumped in and connected us and um so yeah it's been it's it actually you know uh as as you probably know yesterday the the link and the graphics of the tour went up and that was sort of chilling and exciting to me too and seeing like all the various events many of which i will be there for and and also a bunch of which I, I'm not going to be there for and we've sort of started this thing we've been calling community events where just mm-hmm. writers in a given city where I can't uh, reach and where we don't have a contributor writers just sort of volunteer to say okay we'll do a reading um, and celebrate this new anthology because we think it's important um, and there'll be just reading selections from Indelible and the Hippocampus alongside um, a, an excerpt from their own related work in any genre. Um, and so what is my point? I'm talking a lot. My point is that, that, um, that we've been, we've been working for so long just to put together this, um, this tour schedule and community events. We have been uh, working a lot to put word out and there's a bunch of very exciting things that are 
going to happen in the next couple of months. Many excerpts from the anthology that will be um, published in various outlets, um, a bunch of interviews with me, uh, with a bunch of other contributors, one that came out um, in Poets and Writers, where I talked to four of our contributors, and that came out a couple weeks ago, and a bunch more that are coming out. So to your question, yes and no. It feels like it's um, it's it's always happening, and there's sort of uh, different aspects to the work, I think, um, at, at each point in the sort of uh, baby book's life. And, and like I said earlier, I'm excited. I do think it's a, it's a big transition when in, in that life, when suddenly a bunch of people are going to be part of that conversation. So I'm certainly thrilled about that, but no, it doesn't feel like we ever stopped really. <laughs> or maybe like I said a while ago, who even remembers by now? Yeah. Well, it is, um, this book in my mind is, is built for readers, right? It's about mm-hmm. readers um, experiencing it and hearing from these 22 other contributors um, mm-hmm. and reflecting on their own experiences as well, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's part of why I'm so excited about the tour is because um, we'll be having these conversations with readers in a bunch of cities in the U.S. and um and I'm thinking, you know, whether we're reading sections from the book or whether we're having a panel discussion, that's an opportunity to have these very important, very, to me, interesting conversations with a bunch of different people um, about their Me Too experiences, um, about also writing about Me Too, again, in whichever genre you might be writing, whether it is your own story, whether you're making art inspired by your story, inspired by um, this conversation we've all been having for the last two years and before too, of course, but especially in the last two years. Um, so yeah, all of that has been on my mind even more so lately than before. Certainly. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and we're speaking today to Shelley Oreo, who is editor of the forthcoming collection from McSweeney's Indelible in the Hippocampus. And um, we're speaking remotely to you from Tel Aviv. Do you spend part of your life in in Tel Aviv, Shelley? (laughs) I mean, define part of your life, Amanda. (laughs) Which part? (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, no, I guess no is the answer. But also I'm now uh, at the tail end of a whole summer Mm -hmm. that I've spent here. Um, So I guess yes is also (laughs) the answer. Um, I think that people sometimes, because uh, you you referenced my first book earlier, and, and that book is titled New York One, Tel Aviv Zero. Um, so because of that title and a lot of the stories in that book and because of the fact that I, I am Israeli, I'm also American, but I'm Israeli and I grew up in Israel um, and only moved to the U.S. when I was 25 and Hebrew is my first language. And but because of all of that, people sometimes assume that I divide my life and I go back and forth. And again, to a degree, it's true. I visit as often as I can because I have uh, parents here and I have a sister here and I love all of them very much and I have a bunch of friends and extended family and a whole world. We're speaking to Shelley Oria, who is editor of the upcoming anthology from Experience Indelible in the Hippocampus, uh, Writings from the Me Too Movement. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And Shelley, we're going to take a short break and hear one of the songs that you selected uh, for us. Okay. And we'll be back in a minute. the mom. 
and we're back on the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Amanda Yuli, your summer host, and we're speaking to Shelley Oria today um, about the forthcoming book she edited, Indelible in the Hippocampus. Um, Shelley, the what strikes me and most people first about this book is something you referenced earlier, which is the combination of essays and fiction and poetry. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you, you know, when you first began, and maybe we, mm-hmm. maybe we should start there. Maybe we should start with the origin story <laughs> of this book um, and how it came to be. But it, and I'll let you go into that. But I, I'd love to know about the thinking behind um, that as an editor, because it's a, it's certainly more challenging, I think, to weave together yeah. work that's multi-genre like this. Um, it, it would have been a simpler task for you to keep it all essays, to keep yes. it all fiction. Um, but that's not the way this book came together. So talk a little bit about how it came together and uh, the why behind that. I have a radical idea, which is that I can read uh, maybe a section from the um, forward to the book because you had asked me earlier to Tremendous, think about yeah. what I might want to read. And I think that's a maybe um, that answer that's already been drafted that would probably uh, do justice, more justice to that content than I can do if I'm trying to improv and answer it now. Um, sure. So I think maybe that's a good opportunity to read a little bit from Please the book. Do. Does that work for you? It works great. All right. Um, so let me think. Should I read the whole thing? What do you think, Amanda? Should I read I think, the whole thing or just part of it? I think you should read the whole thing. I think it's a great Oh, wow. Overview. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go. You know the beginning. In October 2017, a major newspaper broke a story about a famous producer, a serial predator, a man who wears his ugly on his skin, and our communal ether filled with women's voices sharing private horrors amplifying and echoing one another's words, all stamped with a hashtag. I'd recently finished writing a short story about a woman who murders men, a tale about the potential consequences of sexual harassment, and I emailed Christina Kearns, then executive director of McSweeney's, asking if she'd like to publish it. I used the words quick and soon. I used the word timeliness. I thought, how many news cycles do we have left? I assumed that in a week, the hashtag would stop trending and the world would resume its collective disinterest in everything it revealed. I spent those early days of Me Too feeling devastated in advance. Sometimes I laugh at my 2017 self or her fear. Here we are two years later and the news cycle still hasn't ended. It burst a global movement. But most of the time, I'm still scared that we'll stop trying to change the reality we exposed or that we'll keep trying and ultimately fail. That our country will keep electing presidents and confirming Supreme Court judges who have abused women. My email to Christina initiated a long exchange between us about the role art and literature should play in a crucial cultural moment. What is the point of being a publisher or editor, Christina asked me, if one isn't responding to and deepening the conversation? We need a book, she said. When she asked me to be the editor, I could not have been more thrilled. Books invite concentrated focus and offer an immersive experience. Christina and I both felt that giving physical form to a revolution that lived predominantly on the internet would be a meaningful act. At the time, the end of 2017, the stories of beautiful actresses, most of whom were white and straight, dominated the forming narrative, even though a black woman, Tarana Burke, founded the Me Too movement in 2006. 
it felt essential to me as a queer woman, as a writer who immigrated to this country at age 25, and also as a person aware of her own privilege, to start the work of compiling this book by reaching out to writers of various backgrounds. I wanted to hear from black writers, Latinx writers, Asian writers. I wanted to hear from writers who identify as queer and writers who identify as trans. I also wanted to hear from writers who were adults before I was born, who could offer a broader perspective. Which is to say that I wanted these sentences from contributor Honor Moore. I remember the beginning of women's liberation. I don't remember particular conversations, but I remember the feeling I got when a woman declared she didn't need any movement. This one from contributor Gabrielle Ballot. I had read too many stories of trans women who went to the police after men harassed them and were told by the cops that it was their own fault. What do you expect? The officers asked when you dress like a woman. And this one from contributor Sarita McFadden. I know to expect the requisite bulk, the requisite bulk that comes with being a black woman in the world. I know wrong is not my name. I wanted all these words before they were written, before they landed on the pages of this anthology. So I emailed writers and artists, people whose work had made me gasp in the past. I asked how they were doing, and I asked if they'd be willing to write about how they were doing or if perhaps they'd or they already had. And in my email I said, give me essays, stories, poems, anything. I felt imperative not to limit the scope of this book to one genre. When collective pain and trauma yield art, our job as a society is to receive that art in all the forms it takes, in all its different garbs. In September 2018, as I assembled these artistic testimonies, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford took the stand and shared the details of her trauma with the world. Indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, she said, of the, man who of the men who victimized her. That one of those men was subsequently confirmed as a judge on the highest court in our land is proof like no other that, to borrow Keto Ziegler's words from these pages, we're at the early stages of a reckoning. Our fight has only just begun. Unlike the narrator of my short stories, I do not conceptualize our current reality as a gender war. The fight, it seems to me, is one where ethical people of all genders work together, paving a path toward legal and institutional change. But the act, the activism of telling our stories, started this movement and remains at its core. Contributor Carissa Chen writes, and now I will wait to see if telling this story, if putting it into words made permanent by ink and paper, will help exercise the symptoms rushing through my body. I will wait to see if this is how we begin to heal our bodies by airing out what we have been forced to reckon with silently, protectively, alone. Let us not be alone. Let us encourage everyone's voice and act as vigilant witnesses. Let us hold one another through the aftermath of telling our stories. I think that answers. I think it answers two of your questions. Many <laughs> yeah. of my questions, many of them. Thank you for reading that, Shelley. One of the things that I, I like about how you phrase um, the reasoning behind the book is that um, mm -hmm. giving a physical form, the form of a book to these stories is so different. You know, it's so, um, it's so easy for something like a hashtag to just mm -hmm. um, minimize and make um, common the, these stories. And I think that right. each of these stories in the book and every Me Too story in the world is its own 
unique thing, right? So, um, that, that notion that we are taking just 23 of them and, and telling Mm -hmm. them in this book is really important to me. Do you want to talk Mm -hmm. about that, that physical form? And also, you know, in doing so, I think you can talk a little bit about, um, expand upon the ideas of diversity. So we have, um, Mm -hmm. a diverse list of contributors, but also a very diverse range of experiences conveyed and genre. I mean, it, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's wide ranging in the space that we had, which, which was not infinite, as you know. <laughs> as you know. <laughs> I know, I know, because I think to achieve really sort of the level of diversity that we wanted to achieve, I feel like we would have needed about a dozen books. Yeah. Um, and yet I also feel really good about um, what we did in this context, um, in a bunch of contexts, to be, to be honest, mm-hmm. but certainly in this context, um, because this space was not, um, was finite. Um, as, as you just pointed out, we had 23 pieces and um, total, and it was important to me that you touched on the, the genre aspect of it, which I also referenced a little bit in the, in the forward. Um, but that was certainly part of it. So that already meant that there's some split didn't have to be equal and it isn't, but some split between poetry, uh, nonfiction and fiction. And then, like I said, we wanted to reach as many backgrounds, um, as we could. And then we also wanted to make sure that there's a diversity of experiences, uh, both in terms of, um, women's experiences, but also in terms of thinking of the movement in more than one way and really trying to capture as many aspects of uh, women's experiences, but also of this moment that we're in culturally. Um, so that's at least a, a small portion of what we wanted to do. And also, like I said, in the in the forward, thinking about diversity in a bunch of different ways, because I think um, ageism is also a thing in the world mm-hmm. and a thing that I feel I want to um, sort of respond to from my own tiny corner of the world whenever possible. And this was one book where, or one project where that felt even more important um, to hear from women, like like I said, that who've been uh, who've been around longer than I have, who've been privy to and have fought circumstances before I was even aware of those circumstances. Um, and so that was another sort of um, one other form of diversity that felt important here. Um, I feel like there was a whole other part of your question no, that no, I no. well, forgot let, about when I got into all of this. Let me ask you about approaching contributors. So in order mm-hmm. to achieve those different forms of diversity, you must have approached many people and you must have reached beyond your normal network, I'm guessing. Um, how, t- talk about that and how you identified contributors and chose work. Um, yeah, I mean, yes and no to that, because I think that just because of some sort of, um, specific kind of lines on my bio, um, one of which being that I curated and hosted a reading series in the East Village for about five years. So for five years straight, once a month, five writers were booked. Um, and that series too featured, uh, writers of nonfiction, fiction, and poetry each, each month. So that's a lot of writers that I got to know. And subsequently, um, I co-directed the writers forum at the Pratt Institute for about seven years. And that too meant every year curating, 
um, a big lineup of writers who are guest writers at Pratt. So between those two things, I think my uh, my network uh, is quite extensive in that way, just in terms of knowing a lot of writers that I whose work I'm also pretty intimate with because of these settings where we got to know each other. And so I had a good kind of um, starting list. So if anything, I think that it was the opposite. Like I wanted to invite about 150 <laughs> and I was like, damn, like I think I can probably only invite 30 at most. Um, yeah. And then, and, and so if anything, really that was the challenge kind of, cause there were just so many people out there um, doing work. And especially when it comes to topics like that, it is so hard to choose. Um, it's like, you know, you feel like in some ways it's like, who, who am I to choose? But, but mm-hmm. you know, you're in a position, you're, you're given yes. <laughs> a job and you have to do it. But if anything, that yeah. was the issue for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Narrowing it down was, was a challenge, but I think I, I'm, I think the other part that I dropped earlier of your um, question from a couple minutes ago was about the the physical form thing, which is actually so interesting to me because I, I do think that the importance of giving physical form to this revolution, to you know, putting it in a little in a small book, um, and you know, and there I go, just saying little book, small book. Like we're so I'm so used to being like mm-hmm. not wanting to be grandiose about like we have made a book and therefore we have made the world better. Like I wish, <laughs> I wish, I want to live in a world where that's how that happens. Um, and and it's not always the case, but at least we're doing our part. But so my the point that I'm trying to get to is that um, I've been thinking a lot about it because it is it is. It's true that it's been one of the intentions of the project to begin with. It's it's true that, like I just proved, it's in the forward. And it's also true that it's not, in our world in 2019, it's not totally a given. And people who have already read it in the galley or in interviews that I've done so far, it does come up. Like, people ask about that. So I was actually just... Um, exchanging uh, words and thoughts with um, Lily Danziger, who uh, edited an an also incredible uh, anthology that's coming out about a month after ours um, called uh, Burn It Down. And and it is an anthology of essays in that case, and Mm -hmm. it's about women's anger. And Lily and I are doing uh, a sort of mutual uh, interview type piece for Bomb Magazine. And so we're interviewing each other as two editors of um, somewhat thematically connected anthologies. And it was just a fascinating, we just wrapped and sent that to edits yesterday. And it's it's been so much fun and so interesting. But so the same topic came up. And then in the process, this is sort of ridiculous because I'm now kind of quoting myself for <laughs> something that I already told told Lily and Baum, but um, but in the process of answering Lily's question that was similar to yours from a couple minutes ago, I had a new thought, and I guess it's sort of not fully, um, I mean, I think I stand by it, but I'm just putting a disclaimer out there, like maybe it's not true, but this is it's still sort of a new thought for me, but it sort of occurred to me in thinking about it that you know, as, as, as incredible and powerful um, and as the internet is, that it's, it's so much so that it's a ridiculous thing to even say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has changed everything in the world as we know it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also um, always, at, even at its best, a call for action. Uh, it's preparatory in nature. It prepares us for, for action. So I'm thinking of, you know, politically when we're calling on people to boycott something or when we're calling on them to canvas or call the representatives. And even, you know, this is the example that came up for me when I was writing um, to Baum about this in, in this interview is, you know, even Egypt, maybe for me as an Israeli, that was the f- one of the first things that 
popped in my head is what, you know, the sort of Egypt uh, 2010, I think it was, um, reality where that were, we sort of learned how the internet can be utilized for political purposes um, mm-hmm. in, in ways that I think changed our understanding of what can be done in that space. Even in that space, what happened there, people managed to organize and, and take to the streets thanks to the internet. My point being that at its best, it's still not action itself. And so therefore, I think that's part of why I see it as such a calling is such a big word, but I do see it as a type of calling for all of us to do the work of book publishing, to take this into the physical world. Um, This book will be a thing that people can hold in their hands. These events will happen in the physical world. This is all part of action that that feels to me very different in nature and in energy and in its molecules uh, when compared to things that are only hashtags, that are only conversations that are happening in common threads. I totally agree. We're speaking to Shelley Oria, who is editor of the upcoming anthology from Mixini's Indelible in the Hippocampus, uh, Writings from the Me Too Movement. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And Shelley, we're going to take a short break and hear one of the songs that you selected uh, for us. Okay. And we'll be back in a minute. Shelly Oria. Um, so Shelly, I loved what you were saying before about how you sort of couldn't decide which writers to um, to invite because there are so mm-hmm. many amazing uh, writers uh, on this topic and otherwise. Um, but I, I want to go a step further with that question and ask you about how the, the people you did invite reacted. This is material that is incredibly demanding emotionally and otherwise and I wonder um, I wonder how smooth that process was or how contributors or prospective contributors reacted to the prospect of yeah of this. yeah you know I mean one thing is you you we talked about the kind of the multiplicity of genres that we have in in this anthology and you were 
saying, you know, you were pointing out the challenges of that. And I agree with that. In some ways, my life would have been easier if it was just fiction or just nonfiction. Um, and yet, I think in this case, in the context of what you're asking right now, I think in a way it made my life a little bit easier because I think, especially at that time and uh, at the end of 2017, but even now, it would be very sensitive and, and arguably even problematic to reach out to a writer and just say, hey, do you have an essay? Do you have a Me Too essay, quote unquote, to give me? Because that is presuming something about that writer's experience. And of course, some writers have written publicly about it, so that makes it a little bit less problematic or quite a bit less problematic. Mm -hmm. But many writers hadn't, but I knew certain things. I knew they had um, maybe things they were working on. Maybe I knew of certain experiences that they'd shared with me, but still to write to them and invite them in that way would have been problematic. And because of um, the kind of openness of genre that we have in the book, I felt much more at ease because I wasn't making that that presumption. I was saying, do you have an essay? Are you working on an essay? Would you like to work on an essay or short story or a poem? Um, and so in a way, I think that allowed us to sort of expand both the conversation and the network of people that we were reaching out to. Um, what was interesting too in this context is that no one, not one person that I emailed was like, oh, that hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> like everyone um, had something that they either already had already written but had published uh, in a couple of places, in a couple of uh, instances in the book. Um, we ran pieces, uh, poems to be, to be precise that had already been published. So in a couple cases, people said, yeah, I'd already published something that I would love to include in the anthology. Mm -hmm. And in a bunch of cases, people said, um, there's something that I'm working on, or there's something that I've been wanting to work on, and this will give me a deadline finally. Um, which I think, to me, that's part of the strength. I really feel that in the in all the pieces in the Indelible, is that these are pieces that um, are, are were at the hearts of these writers. They wanted, they needed to be written. And so either they were already at work when I happened to email them, or really they needed that push in the form of an invitation from McSweeney's via me um, <laughs> to, to do that, you know, to write the thing that's been hard to write, but that they needed to write. And it's a way, an invitation is a way of saying that we're listening and the world is listening, yeah. which I think is part of the power of the Me Too I movement. think that's so true, actually, with, when you when you bring that up, because I know as a writer, like so often, you know, I don't think of it that way. I complete work and then I try to put it out there in the world. And as you know, like from the, my own personal story with this, that started, um, the, the way that the whole project started is because I finished a story that happened to be a quote unquote, me too story before the Harvey scandal broke. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it was sort of this coincidence, but generally speaking, I think that, um, we try not to do that with our work, meaning not to wait on a publication or an invitation, but just to, to make our work as artists, write Our, our uh, stories and our words as writers and then put them out there. But I think to your point that this topic is just, uh, for so many, for so many women, for so many people, it's just so painful and so sensitive that I think it can feel feel too scary or too vulnerable to write certain pieces, not knowing that they have a home. Like that kind of the feeling I always talk about with my 
work with my books is like the feeling of a baby that you send out into the world. And I'm sort of imagining this tiny baby kind of crawling out, like knocking on doors and homes <laughs> and like, will you take me in? Will you take me in? And I'm like cringing. Like it's a terrible feeling for writers. And that's a feeling that we have, you know, when we're sending a book out on submission, when we send a story out, when even when emailing a editor, I know, but I don't know if they're going to take this tiny baby or not. Um, so I think that that particular feeling that writers face all the time might just be unbearable when it comes to particular types of experiences and trauma and, mm -hmm. um, and, and that sort of uh, material. And so then I think that it's exactly, it hadn't occurred to me in, in that framing, but it's exactly as you just said, I think that that invitation from us was sort of a promise of a home before the baby was even born. We were saying, like, give yeah. us the baby once it's ready or whatever. <laughs> I've right, complicated right. the metaphor. Once it's ready. Um, but, yes. but, I do, um, but I think that it's exactly right. I think that, that with that topic, that safety actually matters. And I think in some of these cases, these works probably wouldn't exist in the world, to be honest, without that invitation. Right. And then as an extension of that, how do you edit work that's so personal? Uh, again, I'm aware not oh, everything yeah. is a personal essay or based on a personal experience, but even right. so, you were in the position of maybe saying to a contributor, you know, <laughs> yes or yeah. no, or this works for me, this doesn't work for me. And those are very complicated conversations, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And I think that um, in the early days of the project, I definitely struggled with that. Um, I think that pretty quickly, and again, I think this is really just says something about the strength of the writers, um, the contributors in this book, much more than it says anything about me, because I did struggle with it. But then what helped me get over it is just uh, everyone's response like everyone was such a professional about it and more so I think wanted to have these conversations and was very open to these conversations um, and so I think that my sense and maybe that's maybe that's presumptuous of me to say that's for other people to say but my feeling in some of the cases was that even that there was even value or potentially some healing value in mm -hmm these conversations and sort of um, my experience was that we were sort of marrying the writer part and the part that had that experience and like putting them together, marrying them is maybe too strong a word, but like uh -huh. making them hang out or get to know each other <laughs> yeah. um, in a way that I think, you know, for writers who are um, what I sometimes call cellular writers, like, you know, on a cellular level, um, that is being a writer and writing is such a huge part of your identity that any area that it doesn't touch doesn't get to be fully integrated in your identity. And so there's, I think, almost always value in, in writing about something in, in, in a public, in a professional way, in a public way for writers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we're going to take one more break, Shelley, uh, and hear another okay. song. And then I will be here. I'm so glad. We are speaking with Shelley Oria, <laughs> who is editor of Indelible in the Hippocampus, um, forthcoming anthology from McSweeney's this September. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today, and we'll be right back. Thank you. 
myself much too strong to lose control. My mind drifts away to the sunset, the trees, to the child I used to be, and a ship that has sailed out to sea. With the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, we're speaking to Shelley Oria, who's been telling us about her um, editing of the upcoming collection *Indelible in Hippocampus*, out September 10th from McSweeney's. Um, so we talked a lot about the contributors, Shelley, but you know, it's early in the process. I, I'm imagining we already have some input and feedback from some readers. Have you? Have you heard from anyone who's sort of not affiliated with the book who's read it? And um, how is that going? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a funny thing. I think with my first book, these questions would be so much harder. We're always so much harder to answer. And here I feel like I have no problem telling you all the praise (laughs) because it feels like it is my name on it. It is my book, but also it is the book of 22 other writers. Um, So it makes makes bragging much easier. Um, And so, yeah, I've been getting uh, some really incredible responses from readers. I've already been getting um, emails from people who've received galleys um, specifically, um, Lily, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, was telling me some of the works were haunting her in her dreams. Um, <laughs> and it was it didn't even surprise me because that was the, the nature of um, a lot of the responses that I've been getting. And what I also, so far, I really hope this trend continues, but what I've really enjoyed hearing from readers so far is that it's also, that it's not depressing to read, which has always been my experience of this manuscript but like what Mm -hmm. would you even know after a certain point when you're so close to a manuscript you stop sort of having the kind of distance from it that allows you to even trust your own judgment so um but but so many people said you know yes i i cried yes i felt things it's some moments some pieces are certainly intense and at the same time there's lightness and there's a lot of humor there's a lot of moments that are funny um there's a lot there's quite a few pieces in there that are really just very thought-provoking whether that's thinking about kind of the future and how do we where do we go from here and how do we transition to that um you know like keto ziegler's piece touches on that and Carissa Chen's um, essay that I mentioned earlier touches on that and some of the other ones. So, um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot in this book that um, seems so far to be engaging in conversations of, of different kinds, even with readers. And I really, really hope that that's going to continue and that that's going to be people's experience of this book. One of the things that I really appreciate about the book is that, um, you know, it, it, you spoke to it a little bit when you said it's not depressing to read. <laughs> it's it's uh, thoughtful and empowering and other things. <laughs> Do you think things. that should be a blurb that yeah. we had last minute for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I not depressing not to depressing. read. <laughs> um, no, but I think going along with that, I, when we look at the the times that the Me Too movement has been in the in the news, say, we look at 2017 and the whole Harvey situation. We look at um, mm-hmm. the Kavanaugh hearings. Those were wrenching to to watch to witness to be part of and i think that 
this book does something else and it, it's um it may be wrenching in in moments but um mm. those personal stories expand the conversation and i think a really important way again it's not just taking it away from the digital but it's taking it away from the um the news reporting style which which we've yeah. heard too yeah. much of yeah have you yeah experienced that? i know i'm sort of taking in what you're saying um because I think it's really inter- it's also interesting to me after having uh, worked with you for so long that we can still say to each other things that are new, not just to yes. listening to this, but things that are new about this project. Because this was just a new thought from me from you oh. um, that I that I think is really is really true. So, so this is my vo- this is the way my voice sounds when I'm processing the oh. information. <laughs> it sounds good, um, but, but yes. Um, I think that's I think that's really true, and I think that's part of why, um, again, why I'm excited about this book. It's also um, kind of it's not that sort of the journalistic news reporty vibe, but it's also or tone, but it's also not the um, tone of the first um, sort of testimonials that we received, which were incredibly obviously important. Um, but this does have, to me, the and I think that's part of what you're referencing, that tone and breadth of reflection um, mm-hmm. already embedded in it. And that's part of its ability, I hope, um, to expand the conversation. Yeah. So, yes. So, at this very exciting time, when the book is two weeks from publication date, I have to ask you, Shelley, what are you reading yourself you, you must be reading something other than rereading this manuscript in this book over and over, right? what are you what are you up to in your in your book life um well so I just I already I already sort of plugged not even intentionally but but uh burn it down is what I've been reading mm-hmm. this past week because I was doing this um this interview that I mentioned um that I mentioned earlier um I'm trying to think of what this was the last week. I've been reading a few things in Hebrew that are not going to be very, just because, as we mentioned earlier, that I'm in Tel Aviv. And I usually, because I, um, because I live and write in my second language, mm-hmm. I don't read in Hebrew in my first language anymore at all during the year. Um, and, and it is sort of something that I miss a lot. So what I mostly read, um, so I sort of save that only for the times of these of these trips, of these visits, especially the summer where I'm here for a little bit longer. Um, so that's, that's the only time where I sort of allow that to myself. And I'm doing, I'm doing that in a kind of limited scope way, um, this trip, because I'm also about to do a lot of doing already and about to do a lot more interviews for this book and events. And so I'm sort of keeping my Hebrew, um, kind of leaned in too, but, mm-hmm, um, but I have mm-hmm. been reading mostly in, in Hebrew. And so have you, that would that would be harder to communicate. Harder to recommend books for our listeners. <laughs> yes, I mean I can, but well, um. well, burn it down sounds like a, a great recommendation for listeners um, to pick up. That comes out uh, after. In that comes out. October, it does. It comes out a month after us. I think mm-hmm. October eighth is their their official mm-hmm. pub date. And then, um, you know, I have to also ask about what you're writing or what other projects you have that, that you're up to? 
this summer? Sure. I mean, that, you know, I think I think you may know that this, this for me to answer that fully, we should have started the hour with that because that's, I'm working on a bunch <laughs> of different projects at once always. Yes. Um, and so um, I've been very, very excited about the idea of collaboration, of artistic and specifically writerly collaboration in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of ever since around the time where um, McSweeney's approached me in collaboration for them with uh, We Transfer, the company, and commissioned me and Alice Ola Kim to write um, a novella together in 10 chapters called Clean. Yes. That was later published on the We Transfer website. And so around that time, I also started writing a collection of linked stories uh, with Nellie Reifler, who's also uh, one of the contributors in Indelible. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of um, that timing of both of these projects um, coming into my life at the same time really got me thinking a lot about collaboration and getting very excited about it and thinking a lot about the fact that all of my visual artist friends, um, all types of artists really tend to collaborate as it's, it's such a common phenomenon for them. Whereas for writers, it's such a radical idea and it, it has not happened. It's rare. It's very rare. Yeah. It's pretty rare. And it, it does exist and there are examples out there for it, but it's not, um, it's not nearly as common as for other artists. And even with clean, I know when that novella came out, people, we got so many questions, Alice and I, most of the questions were about the process and how could we write together. And I'm so excited about the idea because I think there's so many different ways to do it. Each collaborative project project that I'm working on has a different kind of model. Um, So meaning the two writers find a different way to work together um, that works for them. And, and I'm because I think it yields, you know, by definition, works that otherwise wouldn't exist, wouldn't live, um, that neither writer would have birthed on her own or on his own or on their own. Um, right, and right. so it's even just that thought uh, is exciting to me. But so, yeah, so I'm working on a bunch of collaborations where I'm writing different. The book that I mentioned with Nellie, I'm writing uh, with my friend, the playwright, Alex Berinsky. We're writing a play and a story that talk to each other. So I'm very excited about that project. Um, and I'm working on other types of collaborations with um, so three other collaborations. Um, I'm working on a novel. I'm working mm-hmm. on my next collection. Um, there may be another anthology in my future that I'm not talking about quite yet, but I'm excited about that as well. Very good. Um, Very good. I think that's maybe it. I'm probably forgetting about That's a lot. Time. That's a lot. Well, it's fascinating to hear you talk about these collaborations because I think in so many ways, you referenced it before in this conversation, but, um, this book belongs to the contributors, um, and, and you, that you've had this, um, this dialogue with each of them that's, uh, shaped what this book has become. And it's kind of exciting to see that spirit of collaboration happening in sounds like fiction and other, other things. And I think I was just thinking about that the other day. That's absolutely when indelible came into my life before it was called indelible. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely how I was thinking about it and framing it because it was that point in time that I was just referencing or shortly after that, I was so excited about collaborations and I was thinking, Oh, this is just going to be another collaboration. And I don't think I even at the time realized how true it was because I think Mm -hmm. editing in an, an anthology is absolutely is all about that. You're really at the center of a huge collaborative effort because you and I have been collaborating and I certainly have have collaborated with the 22 other authors um, in this book. And 
and then I'm collaborating now for months now with the team at McSweeney's with the publicist, with, you know, so it's mm-hmm. through so much, so many different types of collaboration that go into it, which for me is very, very exciting. It makes for such a strong final product, you know, like writers, mm-hmm. um, on their own can, uh, can really benefit, I think, from the, that sort of input and thoughtful um, attention oh, from others. Absolutely. And I know yeah. that from the other, you know, from the, from that perspective, I know as a writer, how much I benefit, um, both from the sort of collaborative editorial uh, aspect of the editorial process, but then also when I'm actually collaborating, when I'm making work with another person, it's just, it's wild. <laughs> it's like, even when you think <laughs> one thing and then they take it in another direction, but then it ends up being so cool and expanding something. And when you do that to them and they kind of have to follow you because that's collaboration. <laughs> that's what um, it is. It's yeah, it's all very excited, exciting to me. And I've been thinking about that aspect because I do uh, experience myself as a pretty uh, strong minded, let's say person. And mm-hmm. I often think I have the answers to things. And yet I also find um, finding common ground when it comes to artistic efforts Um maybe more thrilling than almost anything I, I can experience <laughs> in life. And I think that to me is the essence of what is so exciting about collaborations and collaborative efforts, just like indelible. That's the, one yeah. of the aspects in indelible and, in the, and working on this book that has just been um, uplifting for me personally. That's great. You know, I, I like to close the show by asking our guest writers to speak about advice that they have for aspiring writers or new writers sometimes i i twist it into young writers because of my work with with young people um but in this case i think i'd like to ask you that question but i'd love for you to to hone your answer into this collaborative process um it's Mm -hmm. unusual like we were saying before so do you have advice for writers who want to collaborate with other writers or other artists um, it's so funny how at the end of the hour you're asking me questions that I feel like for each of them I could have talked <laughs> I could have talked really for two or three hours for each of those questions especially with this last one because um, I don't even know if you know this but I'm, I also work as a life and creativity coach oh I think you do know that and I've had a private practice for mm-hmm. about 10 years and so I work with um, with creatives in this way and so I have so much to say about creativity and blocking and being creative and believing in yourself as a writer and and all of that, um, that could really be sort of its own show. Um, but, <laughs> Next time. But in trying to, yeah. <laughs> but in trying to, to limit it to the scope that you're asking about. Um, so advice for collaborating. I think the main thing that I've seen, especially in younger writers, is ju- is we've already achieved that, hopefully, if, uh, um, if they were listening to this. Because I think that just even being aware of, it's it's so often something that writers are not aware of. They're not conceptualizing it as an option. And so just for, for me, for anyone to say to them, you know, you know, you can like, you can get together as a group and write a story, figure out how to do it, talk about how you want to do it and do it. Um, or you, to get together two people and write a story, talk about whether you want each, like when I was working on the novella with Alice, we each had our own chapter. And so we created one fictional world. We at times wrote from points of view of characters that the other created. So it was definitely still that kind of intimate effort, but we each had our own queendom limited to her own chapter. Mm-hmm. Whereas for instance, with the book with Nellie that I was referencing or with that, um, projects with Alex, who I mentioned, we're continuing each other's words. So we'll each write, say, 400 words or whatever we agree on and kind of pass the baton and the other person writes the next 
400 or whatever. And you sort of, um, my friend Nelly uh, always says that it's like improv, the, the principle of saying yes. So it's like whatever the other person says, you have to say yes and kind of go with it. And, and so that's maybe, again, and it's sort of in a nutshell, but my point is just even be aware that this is something that you can do, that it brings you back to, the, to um, what's at the core to me of any creative effort is the playfulness, the fun of it, before mm. it's about publishing, before it's about audience, before mm-hmm. it's about whether it's good or not. It's just um, playful and fun. And usually then it's also when it's so good. But if you start from that place and if you are reconnected to that place through something like an idea of collaboration, um, then a lot of good things can can come out of it. Thank you, Shelley. It's been so nice to have you here on the Living Writer Show today. Uh, Thank we you, Amanda. We to Shelley Oria, who is editor of Indelible in the Hip Campus. Look for it this fall. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today, and we'll close out the hour saying thanks again so much, Shelley. Good to have you here. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Will you stay in our lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry, cause we believe in you. Soon you'll grow, so take a chance with a couple of cooks hung up on romancing. Will you stay in our lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry, cause we believe in you. Soon you'll grow, so take a chance with a couple of cooks hung up on romancing. We bought a lot of things to keep you warm and dry, and a funny old crib on which the paint won't dry. I bought you a pair of shoes, a trumpet you can blow. And a book of rules of what to say to people when they pick on you. Cause if you stay with us, you're gonna be pretty cookie too. Will you stay in our lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry. Cause we believe in you. Soon you'll grow, so take a chance with a couple of kooks. I'm up on romance. They messed up this old fool Don't pick fights with the bullies or the cats Cause I'm not much cop at punching other people's dads And if the homework brings you down Then we'll throw it on the fire and take the car downtown Will you stay in my lover's Patients confused. Temp 102. He just had an infection. What's going on? It's becoming septic. Antibiotics started. Bed ready. Let's move him. Infections could lead to a deadly chain reaction in your body called sepsis. Very quickly, sepsis can cause tissue damage, organ failure, and even death. If you know the risks, can spot the symptoms, and act fast, then you can get ahead of sepsis. Learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. 
How's everyone doing? This is Michael, and you're listening to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thank you very much for joining. I will be your DJ until 7. Today, we have something special planned. We're going to do a uh, special little themed show of album openers. So these are going to be my favorite, uh, some of my favorite uh, opening tracks on um, albums. Uh, We're going to start it off with The Beatles, and they had uh, a plethora of choices to choose from, but I'm going to go with uh, what I feel to be a very underrated Beatles album, Rubber Soul and Drive My Car. So I hope you enjoy, and uh, this is the first song on Rubber Soul, and these will all be the first songs on their respective albums, so hope you enjoy. She said, baby, can't you see? 